You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hi, I'm Rob Lloyd. And Rob, if for anybody who isn't aware, is an Australian actor and comedian who will be in approximately a month's time or slightly less be coming over to the UK to do a That's tour. Right. Yes, yeah. I'm, I'm coming all the way over to merry old England. I know you must hate having foreigners say that term, um, <laughs> but you know. You know, the the Australian and British connection is quite strong, so I know that you guys will forgive me for using that old uh, cliched phrase. <laughs> but, um, yeah, heading back over to do something I've been wanting to do for years is a uh, uh, tour of the UK with my uh, show about my obsession with Doctor Who called Who Me. Right. We will come back to that. I think we ought to sort <laughs> of get through the introductions first and so of that course. our listeners, yeah, so that our listeners can find out as much as possible about who you are before we get into strictly what you'll be doing. Because from my own perspective, the first time I'd heard the name Rob Lloyd was on the 42 to Doomsday podcast where you've guested a number of times. I have. I've been um, I've been friends with uh, Mark Smith, uh, particularly for for a number of years. We met on the convention circuit in Australia. So when I um. Uh, I moved to Melbourne in 2000 and I hadn't made that many connections with uh, specifically Doctor Who fans and quite uh, in the lead up towards uh, the 50th anniversary, there was more and more uh, mini conventions and sort of like Doctor Who based conventions happening to you know get to the excitement built up and a lot of old classic um, uh, Doctor Who stars would come out. And at these conventions, I met Mark and his group of friends and we we're around about the same age, the same type of, you know, backgrounds and we connected quite well so we became sort of like a, a port of call whenever we went to these cons so we weren't sort of like lost in the in the in the sea of strangers we'd always find each other and uh, have a good chat and so he said as all fans do who are true fans going i've got myself a podcast would you like to come on <laughs> yeah you know, in the good old days it used to be going going around saying we have a casserole would you like to come around on sunday evening now it's i've got a podcast come around and talk about you know your favorite philip hinchcliffe story <laughs> brilliant what was that do you remember what the first thing you went on to talk about was Yes, the first thing we wanted to talk about, they were they were um, they were very much trying to smooth up to me. They did a whole episode based on my favourite Doctor, uh, the John Pertwee era. So we yes. had a whole episode to talk about all the highs and the lows of uh, you know nineteen seventy to seventy four. Was he your was John Pertwee your first Doctor? Then do you remember? It, well, he kind of was. I got into Doctor Who uh, in not the traditional way. Most. Uh, most UK fans of Doctor Who have the the cliche, which is you grew up with it, hiding behind the sofa, watching it as a kid. Um, uh, in Australia, Doctor Who uh, was always seen as a fringe uh, type of show, sort of like uh, off off the main the mainstream. Yeah. So it was on our 
on our government-run television station, ABC, in the, in the afternoon. And I was quite an anally retentive kid. I couldn't just go into a show willy-nilly. I needed to know all the background. So any type of obsession I had, I needed to know everything beforehand. Star Wars was great. The opening scroll of Star Wars started. You had everything. You knew exactly where you were. But with Doctor Who, I knew it was such a huge show and it had been going on for decades but I needed someone to sit me down and explain it all to me. I didn't know why there were different doctors and why there were different companions and what it all meant. Were they playing different people or whatever it was? And I never had anyone to explain that. So when I was connected with Doctor Who, I would, at the time when I was in primary school and being aware of that type of stuff, Sylvester McCoy was on. So I saw a little bit of episodes of him, but I didn't really immerse myself in Doctor Who until university. So I was, you know, uh, 18 years old at university for the first time, moved away from home. And um, instead of doing what normally people do in university, you know, getting into drinking or experimenting, <laughs> anything like that, I experimented with, hey, there's this, uh, you know, obscure British TV show called Doctor <laughs> Who. Let's find out about that. So that was 96. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that was 96. So that's ah. the year that, um, yeah. Right, yes. So uh, that's the year, John, that's when John Pertwee passed away. And so I yeah. was intrigued to find out about him. And I saw all the news segments on him. And they had in interviews with him on Parkinson and Wogan and little clips like that. And he was hilarious, hilarious and funny and charming. And I loved the velvet jacket and the frilly shirt. And I went, I've got to see more about him. So I went out and borrowed at the local video store, you know, on VHS. Um, <laughs> and it was, his first ever story, um, uh, uh, Spearhead from Space. And so, and from that, I, it was love at first sight. That first story just made me fall in love with John Pertwee, and he's been, been my favorite ever since. Actually, that's a really good place to start. Although, it really was. Yeah. But the thing about it is, you're starting with Doctor Who while Doctor Who's doing something slightly different. But. <laughs> But having said that, actually, if you're starting with the ones where he's stuck on Earth and then move into the ones where they're in outer space doing something completely different every week, you get a sort of a gentle introduction, don't you? It was a really, yeah, really nice introduction and explained everything about regeneration and the alien nature of the Doctor and, you know, yeah, and it set him up in many ways like the Christmas invasion did. There was a threat, and the only hope is the Doctor. But in those first two episodes or episode and a half, John Pertwee's out like a light. We don't know, you know, if, you know, he will save the day, much like David Tennant is out of all of um, pretty much all the first, you know, hour of yeah. um, the Christmas invasion. Yeah, they're wanting this man to, to wake up and save the day and so when he finally arrives and he's all charming and he, he's flirting there with Liz and you're there going this is incredible and he's got that snappy Robert Holmes dialogue. Oh, it was yeah, uh, I was swooned and I've been swooning ever since. So changing the subject slightly because doing your sort of your show, your stand up and and various things like that. How did you get into that side of things? Uh, well, I'd, I'd always wanted to be involved in performing since I was a kid, since I was as, as long as I could remember, I loved, you know, make believe and cr making things up. And my brother and I used to recreate uh, sword in the stone word for word or uh, Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory. We'd act out all the Oompa Loompa songs. It was a part of how we grew up and how we entertained ourselves. We'd just act out our movies and TV shows we loved. 
And so it didn't, wasn't until I was in year seven in high school that I found out that I could choose it as a subject. And that made me go, right, this thing I used to do as a kid just in my living room, I can actually study about it and find out more about it. And that got me into wanting to become an actor. And from that moment on, I went, well, that's what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And so I studied at university and all that type of stuff. And it wasn't until I moved to Melbourne when I'd finished my acting degree that I found out that I could start creating my own shows based on, you know, things that I love. And I found other people with similar interests. So um, I'd work mostly in improvisation because uh, that's my main love in performing wise and sketch comedy groups. So it was I was um, I just turned thirty and I realised that I'd been performing in Melbourne for about ten years and I'd never done a solo show. A lot of my contemporaries started out doing solo shows like when they were twenty one, twenty two. Yeah. So by the time they were my age, they were pros at solo shows. But I went, I've never done this and I need to know if I can stand on stage alone for an hour and keep people entertained. Um, so I went, well, what can I talk about? And I'm going, well, I'm not, I'm not really a stand up who gets up and tells their stories or observational stuff or, and I don't really have a, a fascinating backstory of life. If you look at the life of Richard Pryor or some of those incredible, you know, or Lenny Bruce or all those incredible comedians who have this, you know, um, powerful, you know, upbringing and they've turned that into comedy for the, for the greater good. I'm going, I'm just a, you know, a white scrawny guy from country New South Wales. What can I talk about? So I said, let's do shows about what I, what I'm nerdy about. So my first solo show was about Sherlock Holmes. And in that I just recreated um, a study in Scarlet, the first ever Sherlock Holmes story that doesn't really get interpreted that much because it's like split in two halves. It goes from Gothic, you know, uh, crime solving to an, a Western epic. It's awesome. Um, <laughs> and while I was, while I was creating it, my director said, tell us how you got into Sherlock Holmes. And I gave little information about it. And he said, let's incorporate that into the show. And and I went, okay, I don't find it that interesting. But the show went well. We had a sellout season. And there's a I never expected to do a show about Doctor Who. I always thought Doctor Who, my love of Doctor Who and my love of theatre was two separate things. And I never thought there was a way it could blend. But in my Sherlock Holmes show, there's an opening line where I go, um, before – before driving, before drinking, before even before sex, even before Doctor Who, there was Sherlock, there was Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> yeah. And people after the show would come up to me going, so you mentioned Doctor Who. Does that mean that's going to be your next show? That's going to be your next show? And my director came up to me, Scott Gooding, and he'd go up to the, the, the audience members and go, oh, yeah, 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 it's our next show. It's called Who Me. It's going to be at next year's Fringe Festival in Melbourne. It's going to be great. And they go, oh, thank you. And I go, are we really doing that? And he goes, well, we are now. <laughs> so so yeah, it worked that way. And that's what I've been working on since is finding – new ways to connect with audiences uh, through, you know, my passions and and how they connect with uh, other people. In fact, that actually suggests to me, because you talk about people like Lenny Bruce and that, and they are talking about having had a hard life and they're translating that into comedy. But if you're just a yeah. regular guy, people, as long as they've got something to hook it on to... People don't mind hearing about being a regular guy because most of the people in the audience are regular guys, guys and girls. You know what I mean? But they're mostly regular yeah. people. So if you can find a way, exactly. yeah, if you can find a way to talk about being a regular person through the prism of something like Sherlock Holmes or Doctor Who, you're engaging with them on a really, really shared level, aren't you? I guess it's 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 been fascinating to see them the um 
the the amount of people from different backgrounds who've come to see this show and I've presented uh who me in Australia I've I've done it at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival I've uh, quite recently gone to America and Canada for the first time yeah I was so going to ask a, you about I, that in a minute actually yeah yeah a wide range of people come to see it of all different ages and that's the great thing about Doctor Who it's over 50 years old so you have grandparents parents children grandchildren um you have uni students you have you know um professionals in their 40s you have you know um you know, all these type of range of ages and backgrounds, and they can all relate. I've had people from all over the world come up to me and go, you told my story. Yeah. Uh, and so that was that's really, okay, now I get it. Now it is like, especially with Doctor Who, because it was something we had to fight for. If you've been a long-term fan or even if you've just got into the modern series, it's still something we have to fight for. We've all experienced that time of when it wasn't on the air and when the ratings have you know, dipped and we've had to all rally behind it to fight for it, whether it be the hiatus in the 80s or um, or whether it be on the verge of collapse at the end of the 60s or whether it's, you know, um, with the most recent era with, you know, Capaldi fighting his way through to keep people interested in the show. It's um, it's a fascinating, fascinating approach to a, to, a, to a TV show to look at it that way and how it connects to people. Yeah, yeah. So... Back on the subject of Doctor Who, then, your career, I, I, I imagine that that was happening before Doctor Who returned. Yeah, I kind of, um, I, I moved to Melbourne in 2000. So uh, I'd, I'd studied uh, university in the early, in the late 90s. So it was, the, that was the, you know, the dark times. There right. was no Doctor Who at all. The VHSs and trying to find the odd target novelization was, you know, all we had. This was before Big Finish really started yeah, moving up yeah. even. Nicholas Briggs was doing his uh, Myth Makers where, wherever he could. Um, so, yeah, I, I, the early years of my career was just solely working in sketch comedy group and stuff like that. And Doctor Who was, you know, was out of the public consciousness until um, it all hit back in 2005. So that first five or six years of got, of me trying to be a professional comedian, performer, actor and stuff like that, there was no real who around. Did you ever find yourself slipping Doctor Who jokes in anyway, even in the sort of group shows that you were doing? No, I mean, I, I focused more on more mainstream nerdy references because right. any time I made a reference to Doctor Who, nobody had any idea what I was talking <laughs> Fair Nobody. Enough. Yeah, I could never mention, you know, you know, I could I could never mention Graham Williams, or I couldn't talk about uh, Uncle Terry, or all that type of stuff. I couldn't say never cool or cowardly. No one would ever get what I was talking about. <laughs> um, I could make a reference to Tube Barker. I could make a re- you know, bag the hell out of Jar Jar Binks, and I'd you know I'd hate myself inside. But I'm going I'm going for a cheap gag. I'm going for a Star Wars gag. Well, I want to do the deep stuff. You know, I want to do the really deep sort of like Leonard Cohen style of comedy nerd stuff. I want to do Doctor Who '60s references. Let's talk about the space pirates. Come on. On Milo Clancy. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I'm not sure how well that would have gone down even when people yeah. who did know about Doctor yeah. Who. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh, but did you okay, here's another question. When you came to go up on stage, I'm I'm somebody who has been on stage for one thing and another, not terribly often. I get terrible stage fright. Did you ever find that you, I mean, what's the experience like of just before you're about to get up on stage? First of all, in a group, and then when you do go solo and you're doing something on your own. Yeah, it was, I was, 
um, I used to get nervous in my early days of performing, and then um, uh, I discovered improvisation, and improvisation was a great tool to learn how to really control those fears and use them uh, as adrenaline to push into creating scenes. So at any point, if you forget a line or forget a movement or if anything changes, as it always happens on stage, you've got that backup of improvisation to protect you. It's almost a safety net. And so that's been very helpful for me. So when I went into doing solo shows for the first time, I'd been working in groups and that was my safety blanket. So to have that, you know, ripped away from me for my own, you know, my, my own decision, um, I had to find a way for me to cope. And I was there going, how am I going to do this? It's just me on stage alone. And Scott Gooding, my director of uh, my Sherlock Holmes show and of Who Me, he said something very good. Just think of it as a two-person play, but the other person is the audience. Ah, yeah. You know, yeah, that really helped me to go, there we go. That is, They are the other person. So the stage is the entire venue as opposed to just, you know, the, the stuff, the, the lit area where I am, everyone's a part of the show. And that really helped um, build that connection. So the audience is in the show as well. Wow. So when you're on stage, I mean, you talk about improvisation, but I, I mean, you don't go up there with absolutely no plan whatsoever. When you go up on stage, you must have a sort of fair idea in your head of, uh, not just what you're going to do, but a kind of format to build around. Is that right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Especially with um with uh, the solo shows and stuff like that. I like to have a really solid structure, a structure that you know I know within an inch of its life. I know it back to front, and so that tightly run a show. Uh, if there are moments that you may springboard off, get an inspiration, uh, anything from an audience that, you know, how they, they may laugh at a joke harder or they may not laugh at a joke, you know how to build off that. Uh, a lighting cue may, you know, go a bit early or too soon. A sound cue may not come in or a picture slide that you've got up on the PowerPoint. You've got that there. And if you may rift with another riff with another performer, that can go off, but you've always got the script to go back to so it doesn't become self-indulgent. Uh, with something like Who Me, it's been – I created the show in 2011 and I've been doing it ever since. I've been doing it, you know, uh, over seven years, coming up to eight. Wow. So it's it's a, it's, it's a show I know inside out, um, but every location is different. Every venue I go into, there's going to be challenges, whether they can connect my, you know, my – laptop up to the powerpoint will the projector screen work do we have enough time to cue this show in because it's a very tech heavy show so i need to make sure that the tech person is tuned in and whether they can adapt to that so some cues may miss some cues may not and especially with the upcoming tour i'm only doing one show in each location so i don't have a a, a run of about two weeks or 10 shows to warm up into it i've got a it's got to go on that night. Otherwise, you know, so that type of stuff, I'm there going, okay, this is where a bit of nerves are coming in and this is where I'm going to have to really be on, on, on the ball. So if anything does stuff up, we can keep the energy going and not make the audience feel awkward or uncomfortable and, and not make the tech feel unco uncomfortable as well, because they're, they're, they've been given this show, you know, three hours beforehand and they're yeah. expected to know it and master it. So it's all about, all get, getting together and not letting the fear take you over to to the point of being uncomfortable. Do you find then that if there are mistakes or if there are things that don't go to plan, that becomes a part of the show? Yeah, it really does. And the crowds, you know, anytime there's a massive mistake, 
uh, and you, how you cover it and how you know, well or, you know, or, or how quick you are to respond to that. Uh, the, the audience will always come up to you and go, oh, you got to keep that in the show. And that's the, yeah, yeah. the pain, about, pain about being an improviser. But you, I know both sides, trained as an actor and as an improviser. So if you do an improvisation show, audiences come up to you afterwards going, oh, that must have been fully rehearsed. You rehearsed everything. And you go, no, it's all made up. And then when I started doing scripted work and then I get on stage with my scripted partners and they go, oh, you just, just rifted off each other like you you improvised the whole thing. And I'm going, no, we sat down and wrote this. <laughs> so it's a first world problem. I know, Jay, I'm here complaining. Go, go, oh, no one understands my art. I'm going to make – Let's get back to you know Milo Clancy. <laughs> no, but it's good. This is this is how things work. I mean, uh, when you uh, if you're an actor working on television or in the theatre, everything's basically laid down for you. And between the script and the director, essentially, you're there to do a job for them. But if you're yeah, pretty much. But if you're doing a show like this, everybody else is there to do the job for you. Because you're the centre of attention and you're the one whose shoulders everything's resting on, isn't it? Not that I'm trying to make you exactly. even more nervous, but you know what I mean. No, no, no. No, that's that's that, that's okay. If you hear any random sounds, it's just distortion. It's not me, you know, farting <laughs> out of fear. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it is. That's one thing I learned from my training and my experience over the last couple of years, television and mainstream theater very much is a product of the directors and the companies and the producers and stuff like that. And especially film, the actors are just a small part of, you know, this whole process and mm. how, you know, you're just a cog in the wheel and big theater shows as well. You're very much controlled by the companies that run them and the, you know, if you're doing a big musical, there's no room for interpretation. It's just play the character the way that, you know, everyone expects you to. But my my love of theatre comes from the fact of, you know, you rehearse this piece for for weeks or about a month, you get up on that stage and that's when the director steps back and that's when the actors take over. Once you step on that stage, the actors are in charge. They're in charge of taking responsibility for the audience, making sure they are, you know, you know, engaged in the show for however long it is. And then at the end, they, you know, hand them back to reality. Um, and so that's the way I like to look at it is sort of like, you know, the stage is where the actor really has control uh, over what they do. And that's where training is very important and all that type of stuff. And in what you do, especially, and I'll just give a slight example of something not a million miles away. I went to see um, Paul Draper recently simon actually from the podcast and i went to see paul draper recently on a, a tour hey. he was doing for he's not done an album for 20 years and then he's suddenly done a comeback album and, and gone on a tour he's not played live yeah. for 20 years and previously <laughs> when he was in manson they were quite get up on the stage do the songs and it was uh he wasn't terribly chatty Seeing him 20 years later, where he's completely relaxed and he's kind of engaging with the audience, chatting with the audience. And he's actually, because this is sort of, he's just come back. He's, in a way, explaining to them how he feels and what he's doing and how he's planned it and put this set together. And there's even one bit where he sits down and plays a song and he starts in the wrong key. And about two minutes in, he suddenly says, he just stops the song halfway through and says to the audience, look, I should have started a bit lower. I'm never going to reach these high bits. I'm going to have to do it again. 
And the audience, instead of being angry or thinking, what the hell's going on? Because he's been chatting to them all the way through, they're on side. They laugh. They all sticking their thumbs up at him. He starts the song again. It's all fine. They're all on side. And so this is by way of me saying to you, you, the most important thing, even more important possibly than the material, is building your relationship with the audience because for those 90 minutes or 60 minutes or whatever it is that you're on stage in front of them, you've got to have a relationship with them as if you've been their best friend and you've known them for years. Definitely. And that's, yeah. yeah, It is is that connection. It is that connection. I mean, you know, it's earning that that trust and earning that um, uh, that ability to, you know, feel as if, you're not on a, a big stage in a, a, you know, a stadium or a massive theater. It's just, it could be you know, down at the pub. It could be in someone's living room and to, you know, to transform that space into somewhere that intimate is uh, yeah, it's, it, it takes hard work and a lot of, um, and a lot of trust has to be uh, built up. And it's, and, but when it happens, it's, it, it's, it's an incredible feeling. Yeah. Do you find then on that sort of same subject, there's a particular way you are you like to open shows that kind of is a shortcut to getting people on side, as it were? Yeah, I can't like I've, I, I kind of um, I learned from a lot of like old school comedy. That's what I was introduced into. I didn't get into Monty Python until I was a lot um older yeah. uh so i had i had stuff like um uh, dad introduced me to the goon show and a little bit of you know the, the you know classic stuff like the two ronnies but um uh, all that type of classic type of approach to comedy in australia we had um uh, one of our big stars was a guy called graham kennedy who was like the ultimate showman and uh burt newton and stuff like that and they were like ultimate showman like a bruce forsyth type of thing yeah, or even, yeah. you know, even, even wogan as well the, those guys who were you know quick uh, witted, just charming as all hell and could you know run in a gag i love those just you know quick start high energy hosts with gags here left right and center they could be you know they could be bad puns they could be you know god awful uh dad jokes but i like that high energy so like bang 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 hit it hard hit it hard don't don't take yourself too seriously and that's a way of you know building it down because there's a lot of expectations when audiences go to see comedians as well that they're going all right these guys think they're really funny so if you come out and immediately you know not tear yourself down but say that you know you know, you don't place yourself above the audience. There's a way that I try and do it. Just be, you know, silly, quirky, quick fire and just show how much of a dickhead I am. And then <laughs> we go, all right, okay. Establish the dickhead factor and then we are all on the same page. All oh, right, fair enough. Yes, because I have seen a That's couple... That's a technical term, JR. The dickhead factor <laughs> is a very technical term. I'm giving away a trade secret right now. I may be killed by the uh, drama Illuminati. Because, yeah, I have seen, I've not been to a lot of a lot of live comedy, but I have seen comedians absolutely die. And I think one of the reasons sometimes is that they kind of bring their nerves. And so if they don't get people on side immediately, instead of sort of taking a step back and saying, right, I have to sort of re-engage here. What they've done, and I'm talking at the most amateur level, really, what they've done instead is let the nerves take over and then they build a bigger and bigger wall between them and the audience. 
Did and you the ever? Wor- and the worst thing they do. Yeah, and the worst yeah. thing they do is also start start to blame the audience as well. And that's I've made that mistake many times in my early twenties when like a gag didn't hit or a connection didn't be made wasn't made. I you know the anger then goes towards the audience. Oh, they just didn't get it. Oh, they weren't in the right mood. He said, "Well, you know, it's if you gauge the audience properly, you can see where you can go with it." And I, I, I there's nothing worse than a comedian blaming the audience for them doing a bad job. Yeah, well, it's one of those things, and there's no two ways about it, but you have to shoulder the responsibility, don't you? Definitely, you really do. That's something I was you know, um, taught at a very early age when I got on stage, and especially when I started doing comedy, some of the old hands around the traps when we first started doing comedy uh, when I moved to Melbourne in the early noughties was watching the comedians who would – get angry at the audience for not getting into them and watching them. And then the old hands going to us, you see that don't do that. That's, that's bad comedy. That's bad showmanship. That's all that type of stuff. So it was a, you know, baptism of fire in those early days to, to learn how to work a stage and learning off other people's successes and also your own failures and other people's failures as well. Yeah. So give us a bit of an idea. We'll, we'll come back to who me in a minute, but give us a bit of an idea of, what a one of your group shows that you might have done years ago give us a bit of an idea of what one of those might have consisted of because you've talked about Um, slides and powerpoints and things like this so give us a bit of an idea you know of 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 this show well this is um uh one of the most influential you know comedians in with sort of like my contemporary era australian comedy was a a british comedian Uh, one of my favorites is a guy called dave gorman um, oh yeah, great, yeah. great, great British comedian. He did a, a famous show, uh, "Are You Dave Gorman?" where he had to meet fifty-two Dave Gormans, and then he did Google Whack Adventure. Great guy, and he did Genius, a beautiful radio show. He came out and did his show in like uh, two thousand one and stuff like that, and he used PowerPoint quite effectively. And so from that moment on, a lot of comedians of my era in Australia started to do the same thing, and that's where I got my inspiration to do powerpoint as well but before that it was mostly i started out in a musical comedy group uh there's a you know one of the most iconic um um, legendary musical comedy trios in Australian uh, comedy is uh, the Doug Anthony All-Stars who had a massive following uh, in the UK and so inspired by them myself and two other friends kind of started out in musical comedy in university and then we moved to Melbourne. And so we we started out in country New South Wales at university doing like hour-long shows of our own material and writing songs for whatever we wanted to and what we knew around, you know, in you know, in a country town. And then we moved to Melbourne and we tried our luck at comedy there. And we, our first, you know, our first gig, they said, great, okay, we'll lock you in for five minutes. <laughs> and we'd been working for a year at an hour and we're going, now we've got to cut down our entire show to five minutes. So we had to relearn how to perform as a trio in five minute blocks, 10 minute blocks, you know, and we had to shape our songs, which, you know, they'd take forever to get to a gag. We had to create punchier songs that had a gag pretty much every line, um, high energy. And it was, you know, you know, young white guys just doing young white guy songs about, you know, how old people are funny and me now being 40, looking back going, you just calm down, young Rob. Okay. <laughs> just have a bit, more respect, a bit more respect for your elders. And then I shifted from that even into 
improvisation and like pure improvisation shows so like whose lines is anyway live on stage for two hours so i had a collection of comedians actors musicians that would meet up every sunday afternoon rehearse for about an hour and a half and then do a two-hour show and this built up and i did this for about uh seven or eight years of um and this is where i really learned how to engage with all types of audience. We'd, we'd perform in front of five people, 30 people, 150 people. We'd do guest spots uh, on Saturday nights at the local venue where we were performing in front of 450 people full of drunken hens and bucks yeah. nights. And we'd do improvisation spots for 10 minutes, come out and go, hello, we're going to improvise scenes for you. And we'd have to adjust to that. So that's sort of like the shape of my performing career for the last uh you know 10 15 years was musical comedy then improvisation and then a couple of us from the impro group decided to become a trio and we create our own uh, our own shows based on what we know pop culture references and um you know high energy elements of scene building that we got from improvisation when you do things with pop culture references how difficult is it to judge how deep you can go? And are there times when you get an audience and you'll find that the stuff that you normally do that works with that audience isn't hitting and you have to readjust the kind of, uh, the kind of depth of the jokes you're telling? Yeah. I've, um, it's, it's, it's a lesson I've learned from, uh, we, I did a show years ago called every film ever made where myself and two other performers acted out, uh, pretty much every movie in existence in an hour. And we wow. got to the point where we, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It, it seems to be believed. Um, but it, it was a case of we were doing it going, well, we've got to hit all the big main mainstream references that people get. But then we got to a point of how obscure can we get? How specific our pop culture references can we do? And I found that with uh, Who Me as well is the case of how deep can I go with these references? Like how, you know, you know, dare I dare I mention the myth makers? Dare I make a you know a reference to you know the actress who was cast as Sarah Jane Smith before yeah, this later? Yeah. How far can I go? And it got to the point where um, I learned a lot from uh, another big influence of me is uh, Simon Pegg, uh, Edgar Wright, and Nick Frost mm. and their Cornetto trilogy. I love the Cornetto trilogy. All three films are just masterpieces, yeah. and they have got that balance of they they tell their story. And they have big sweeping pop culture references, and then they have the really obscure stuff. But they don't let that dictate the story. So that's what I try and do with my shows as well. I can spatter in references that are, you know, big sweeping main, you know, mainstream uh, references that everyone will get. And then I'll throw in a couple of really obscure stuff that's not going to stop the flow of the story. But, you know, those people who will know it will go, ah, maybe I may just get one person given, ah. But for me, that's just for me to keep things going and keep things fresh and just try to hit deeper levels, but not make it all about that because then it just becomes tiresome and self-indulgent. You've got to keep the story moving. You've got to connect with everybody on every level. But you can throw in just a curveball now and then and see if it uh, if it hits. And I guess when you do that, part of the success of throwing those things in is A, having got the audience on side in the first place, and B, the way you throw them in, the way you tell them, as it were. Yeah, exactly. Like the, uh, one of my proudest gags in Who Me, and I won't give it away here, no. but it's a reference. <laughs> 
It's a reference to Carol Ann Ford. And if anyone gets it, 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 I get like one person laughing every five or six shows. And if they do, they come up to me after the show and they go, hey, and I go, you got it? Well done. You know, <laughs> gold star for you. So. <laughs> wow. But yeah, it's like, I, a tre- it's like a treasure hunt. It's a, it's a nerd hunt. Go deep within the show and see what other little Easter eggs you can find along the way. Wow, lovely. And and I guess that's true of the whole show as well. Is uh, I guess depending on the audience, you have to judge the amount of emphasis you put into the sort of jokes, the punchlines, the whatever, and how much time you can spend on the build-up as well. I guess you have to angle your personality to how the audience is responding to all the different different bits of it. Yeah, very much so. It's a case of sometimes I have more uh, an audience filled with classic Doctor Who fans. Sometimes I have, uh, have audiences where the majority are all modern fans. Some of my favorite shows that I've done where I have a majority of just regular punters. I did Comedy Festival 2012, and um, there are a couple of nights there where I went out and, and I started off my show, and and I went, wow, none of you are Doctor Who fans. And they all the, the entire audience went, yep, pretty much. And I went, okay. Right. So I, on the spot, I had to shift this. So I sort of like almost not skip through, but I just do the references and then hit the stuff that they, that I know that I could connect with them, yeah. whether they're a Doctor Who or whatever. So that type of stuff really teaches you a lot about the show and how I can add things in or shift it according to where my audience is. And I don't know until I step out onto that stage. And then within the first five minutes, I know where I have to pitch the show. Right. And yeah. then we go, okay. That's where we can go. That's where we are here. This is the type of audience I have. Great. Okay. Let's 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 go down that avenue. And that's only because I've been doing this show over seven years. So I've built up enough alternative versions of the show that I can I can build it up. But that took me years and years of just trial and error in front of many different audiences all around Australia and yeah, in different countries as well. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say that's experience, isn't it? It's experience and nature. And I guess that experience comes throughout your entire career because you're learning right from the very start. Not what works in a specific sense of I can use this joke, I can use that reference, but what works in a general sense of this is the measure of the audience and here's how I have to attune. Because you've got to attune to them as much as they've got to attune to you. That's right, isn't it? Very much so. Yeah, you are you are there. Like I said, you are there to you're, you're taking control. You're taking control of the audience and guiding them through, and you're taking care of them. So it's up to you to be aware of where they at, what they're you know how they feel. It and it depends on the night as well. It might be a stormy night. They may not really want to be coming out. They'd rather stay at home, but they've come out anyway. Or it might be a balmy summer day, and they're going, oh, okay, well, we've got to see this show. I want to go out and enjoy you know the rest of the the evening. You've got to gauge where you are, the location, the the vibe of everything. You you really don't know until you're you're out there Um, and it just yeah the more experience you have uh the better it is i did a um a guest appearance a couple of weeks ago at the local uh doctor who club of victoria and they called me down to come and just do a talk and they said oh could you do who me and i said well you don't really have the lighting and the sound and the projector and stuff like that i'll just do a couple of my stories from there and we'll see how we go and i didn't really plan anything i just kind of stood there and I just went, well, let me just tell you how I got into Doctor Who. And I'd slip in and out of stories or gags from my show. But it's a case of I wouldn't have been able to do that 
you know, seven years ago when I first started this show. I definitely wouldn't have been able to do it 15 years ago, but I just talked roughly for about 45 minutes, you know, and hitting, just telling my story. And I'd hit a gag, or I'd hit something a bit emotional. I'd get, you know, a bit of banter from the audience if I'd make an, a, 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 you know, a controversial statement uh-huh. saying that, you know, Fear Her is one of the greatest episodes ever of all time. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I just just to, just to clarify, I don't believe that. But sometimes I just throw it out there just to see what people think. Um, <laughs> stuff like that. But that's only through experience, and I would not have been able to do that, you know, you know, ten years ago. And I especially wouldn't have been able to do it when I first started this show. It's just from doing it so long and spending so much time in in the company of Doctor Who fans yeah, from all yeah. around the world. Yeah, you you, under, you get to a shorthand about how you know how you can interact. It's and that's what you love about the community of fandom. You get to you know you can you can get to a and point b point a and point b a lot quicker with fandom. Yeah, speaking of fandom then, and speaking of the show, and we've been sort of we've been sort of circling around it. But you recently went to America. And did a bunch of dates yes. in North America. And as you say, you also did the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And both of these were with Who Me, if I'm not incorrect. Yes. So yeah. have you found there's a big difference between the audiences in Edinburgh in America, or even in various different parts of America, and back home in Australia? Do the audiences yeah. know different things and respond in different ways? It's it, it, It's they all... They all relate to the to the story. They all have their their relationship with feeling as if they're the only one who connects with this fandom. They feel the isolation of not having anyone to talk to, especially if you're a classic fan and you went through that '90s era where there wasn't really anything except Paul McGann for yeah. you know, an hour and a half. Um, uh, so that type of thing is something that is universal about about fandom and how we claim it and what we love about the Doctor. Um, and how it relates to us, and how the doctor, you know, their his point of view and his or his values, you know, is something we want to aim towards. But then you get to each particular country or each particular area has its own unique uh, fandom because they were introduced to Doctor Who in a different way. So the UK population just claim it as their own. Obviously, it came from the UK. You've lived it and breathed it all fifty-five you know years of its yeah. existence. You just, yeah, it's almost as if, you know, it's, you know, it's offhand. It's sort of like, you know, you almost, almost take for granted how much Doctor Who's a part of your culture. Whereas um, Australian fans are a lot more excited by the community basis of it. At all my shows, I always, in Australia, I always have people showing up in cosplay or they've always known each other. They always know each other. They're talking now online and it's a, it's a community thing. So they all come together as a massive group. They see the show, then they go out and have a drink afterwards. Um, and because that's what it was, that we're so far away from the action and we get Doctor Who years later, you know, when the new series, we've got it six months later than, than, than you guys. So yeah, we always yeah. have to work harder. We always had to work harder to, to get Doctor Who material and we'd appreciate it in many ways a bit more because it, we worked so hard to get it, and so that victory was hard fought. Whereas in the UK, you can hey, you can get it whenever you want. Come on, um, <laughs> New Zealanders are very, very passionate. They got Doctor Who in New Zealand before anywhere else outside of the UK. So they got it before Australia, they got it before America, Canada, all that type of stuff. So they claim that 
and go, you know, we're, we're, we're the true fans because we got a, we were the first country outside of uh, the UK. So they are very staunchly, they, they claim that very, very passionately. Um, Canada has been, they've watched it pretty much since uh, the word goes. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a strong cultural community there as well. They were very embracing of me when I went to Canada. Yeah. I had the Doctor Who Club of Ottawa come and see me opening night. They were always spruiking me online and, and spreading the word. They came to closing night as well. They helped me get to Montreal fringe fest, um, um, uh, comic con there. They were very helpful and they spread the word a lot and they have big gatherings. They have, um, uh, marathons at, at and, and meetings where they show episodes. And this is like a, a big part of, of their culture as well. In America, it's a, a much more, um, very much a, a, a cult status because it was, it was shown on PBS in the, in the eighties. And so those hardcore fans really had to work hard. You talk about, you know, working hard in Australia. It was, there was no support in, in, in America for Dr. Who fans in the eighties. And a lot of the new fans with the Matt Smith era, that's where it got a bit of a spike in popularity and it's a bit more in the the you know the consciousness of of, of the mainstream but it's still you know very much a, a cult level thing so yeah, it's yeah. it's the, the fans are a lot more uh, uh, harder to find and they kind of keep to themselves it's whereas america is mostly dominated by, by the big franchises like star uh, star wars and star trek but doctor who is there but not as supportive i didn't get as much help and uh publicity help from the the local communities of doctor who fans in in the in the states but um but the fans did come out so they all connect on those universal levels but it's nice to find the little quirky differences in each country which i absolutely adore do you tend to throw in sort of specific jokes for specific people then i mean don't i don't mean specific individuals but specific (laughs) communities as it were yeah, I have I have sort of like an Australian version of the show, and I have an international version of the show. So just some of the references to, you know, uh, to certain figures in TV or in in pop culture that are very uniquely Australian. I would never do those references in the states or in the UK. So yeah. I, you know, uh, but the show has evolved in seven years. So there are some references now that. I've had to think about whether changing or updating because so much has happened within that time that, you know, you know, you know, revelations of certain people in fandom or stuff like that. It really reshapes the show. And especially when the show first came back in 2005, a big thing about Russell T Davies was bringing more of a prominent female audience to Dr. Who. And there was always female fans of Doctor Who in the 60s, 70s and 80s. But um, we were always seen as, you know, you know, male and, and, you know, bad hygiene and staying at home and not good social skills. That was the cliche. <laughs> yeah. Doctor Who fans. So there was a real push in those early days of the modern era to say, you know, welcome in the female fandom and make it a more inclusive environment. Uh, and that took quite a while to happen. And now, brilliantly, you know, it's commonplace, you know, um, yeah, female yeah. fans who have a voice, even the LGBTI community have a strong voice as well. They've always been Doctor Who fans, but now they are having a chance to actually speak and and be heard and know they're seen on an equal playing field as opposed to everyone just focusing on, you know, the single white males. Yeah, and getting a woman doctor can only sort of help to cement that. Because the fear is that Doctor Who goes back to being what it was, I guess. But now, yeah, yeah, it's a show that's always 
prided itself on change as much as sticking with certain traditions. You know, when Russell T got in charge, he said, oh, no, we've definitely got to have – there are some things that stay with Doctor Who. It has to be a, a, a police phone box. Yeah, the yeah. TARDIS has to sound like that. The sonic screwdriver has to sound like that. You know, the Daleks have to look that way. Um, the Cybermen can change whichever way they want. Um, <laughs> yeah. So those, those traditions have to stay the same. But then there's other things about Doctor Who is that, you know, it's always evolved to the genre that fits that era. You know, it was educational. Then when that used up, they went, well, let's go for this more space opera-y, you know, Monster of the Week type format, which was big in the late 60s. And then they went, well, now let's change that. Let's go for more of a Quater Mass Avengers style. And then it went, well, let's go for more gothic horror. It's not a show defined by its genre. It's uh, the genres can define the show, which is uh, quite fascinating about Doctor Who. That's why it's been able to evolve so much, you know, uh, a, a Hinchcliffe era story, you know, even just within Tom Baker's seven years, he has three, you know, distinct yeah, genres. Yeah. He has gothic horror, you know, um, you know, space romps, and then you know the intensity of Chris Mace Bidge mean going. Can't you see I'm Arthur C. Clarke? Can't you see? <laughs> go, yes, yes, yes. And John Nathan Turner going, take me seriously. I'm not about pantomimes. I'm not about Beryl Reed just yet. I'm all about serious, hard-hitting science fiction fact. Yeah, and then just a few months <laughs> down the road, he is all about Beryl Reed. Look, we've yeah, skirt- bring on Beryl Reed. She's a she's a space pirate. Why not? Yeah, why bring not? Bring her on. Right, who me? You've you've yes. You've had this show about Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes, and people have asked about a Doctor Who show, and your director has said to you, "Right, that's what we're doing next." You have to sit down and say, "Right, we've got to do sixty minutes, ninety minutes, whatever it is, Doctor Who." What's the format? Where do you start? How do you take it? What do you actually? If you had to sit here and say to me in two minutes. This is what the show's going to be. Come along and see it. What would you tell me about the show? Well, it, it took us a lot of brainstorming back and forth and talking about it. And then we f- found out what the essence of the show was. The essence of Who Me is putting Doctor Who on trial, putting uh, obsession on trial to find out whether it has actually been a good influence on in your life or a bad influence. Whether being that obsessed with something is fundamentally good for you or bad for you as a human being. And so we put the doctor on trial. And let's face it, the doctor is quite familiar with being put on trial many (laughs) times. So we thought, let's put the doctor on trial to see whether he has ruined my life, Rob Lloyd, as a fan, whether he's been a positive influence and shaped me in a good way to become a fundamentally, you know, useful member of society or whether it is, you know, you know, change me into some way that is, you know, been a negative influence on society. That's the main essence of the show. Brilliant. That is a that is a really nice angle to do it from, it's gotta be said. <laughs> and however long it took you to come up with that. I guess I guess you actually sat down the two of you between you to work this out. Is that right? Very much a collaborative effort. Yeah. The um uh, this and 
uh, a study in Scarlet, my Sherlock Holmes show, um, was very collaborative. We, we'd sit, we'd talk, we'd chat about our own fandom because Scott was a massive Doctor Who fan as well. So we'd talk about our own backgrounds of it and we'd talk about the moments we're embarrassed about being a fan. We'd talk about the moments we were proud of being a fan. And so then it became, okay, this balancing act of pros and cons and then it became a trial. It became a case of this is evidence, you know, these yeah, – these, yeah experiences experiences of my life is evidence of a positive influence and this is a you know evidence of you know how i've wasted my time i've wasted you know i can remember you know i can remember the date of when doctor who went to air but i've forgotten my dad's birthday you know more <laughs> times than i knew so, so this is the type of thing that it is being a doctor who fan good or bad for you and that's why that's where it all came from and we were very heavily based on discussions and improvisation and brainstorming and then we'd evolve that into taking those recordings of our brainstorming and I'd take the best bits and write the script and evolve it from there. And I guess actually this is as well where getting the show on in the first place years ago and all those years of experience and having all those variety of different audiences to sort of bounce off, this is very much the question you're asking, is Doctor Who a good influence or a bad influence in that sort of slightly obsessive way that fans will have about something, this is all going to really mould the show in the way we've been talking about in a really particular way, given, given, the, uh, you know, given the question you're asking, isn't it? Exactly. Um, I mean, I was aware when I was going into the show that um, there was already a quite popular, well-known, um, you know, comedy-based show about Doctor Who fandom coming out of the UK. I was very much aware of Toby Haydock's yeah. uh, work. I, I, hadn't seen, I hadn't seen the show live, but I'd listened to uh, his radio recording of it. And so that was a good influence for me as well to go, well, my story of Doctor Who is different to Toby's. And Toby got into it very much the old school way of from childhood when I came into it you know, as a teenager. So, and his very much was a case of how Doctor Who was, you know, a replacement father figure and this inspiration to him and how it saved him through, you know, high school and all that type of stuff. And so I looked at that and went, well, that's his story and let's look at my story. And for me, the main story of my fandom was that case of that battle within me going, is this good for me? Is it bad for me? Because, you know, I, I wasn't always a huge Doctor Who fan. There was a dark era in 1999 where Doctor Who was not on air. It had, we hadn't had the telly movie for some time. It was just sitting, not doing anything at all. And then something bright and flashy and uh, and CGI based came back into my life. Uh, like there, there was Star Wars, then mm. the prequels came in, and so I gave up on Doctor Who for a couple of years and focused on the prequels. And I regret that ever, you know, ever since. Um, <laughs> you know, Jar Jar and Hayden Christensen and you know uh, Darth Vader screaming out no. Um, uh, that was pretty much the nail in the coffin, and then, of course, who came back in two thousand and five, and you know, and the the love affair reignited again. Well, I don't want to talk too much about it because I don't want to spoil it for anybody who might want to come. <laughs> but, 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 but on the subject of the show, but without talking about the show, how did it come about that you come in over to the UK then? Um, well, I. I'd always wanted to do Edinburgh. I'd never done Edinburgh before uh, in my life. And I heard so many stories about the Edinburgh Fringe. I'd heard the amazing stories. I'd heard the horrifying stories. But I knew, you know, 
you need to do it at least once. You need to do the Edinburgh Fringe to experience it. If you if you consider yourself a comedian, an improviser, a fringe performer in any way, shape, or form. So 2013 was the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. I'd been doing Who Me for about two years. It built up a lot of um, momentum, and I went on a, a big tour. I toured all the big cities in Australia, and I finally got into Edinburgh. It was a great time. It went really, really well. It was the year, you know, Capaldi was announced. It was a wonderful experience. Um, and then I sort of like came back into the reality of things. I started working with the BBC a little bit and then, um, you know, Doctor Who just moseyed along. And then I got to a point where I was working at my full-time job and it was getting a bit stressful and I was kind of, I hadn't spent as much time touring for about a year and a half. I was stuck in my job, stuck in Melbourne, and I got a bit of cabin fever. So I applied for six months off work and I went, let's go back on tour. And I was planning to go to the States, to Canada, and I was hoping to get back to Edinburgh, but with a new show. I've got another show about my obsession with Star Wars, and I was hoping to get that over there. Yeah. Um, And uh, I was looking for help, and all my connections with – uh, the the venues in the UK were kind of drying up. So I went to an old friend of mine, Nick Clark, who uh, was an artistic director of a theatre company in Wagga while I was there, and he's now working as a management producer. And I got, was talking to him about, look, could you help me get in touch with some of the big um, venues in, in Edinburgh for my Star Wars show? And while we're talking about it, he said, oh, that sounds like an interesting show. Tell me more about Who Me. And I talked about Who Me. And he goes, yeah, I think we can make – I think I can help you with Who Me tour around. I went, well, if you can help, that would be great. What about the Star Wars show? Let's focus on Who Me. (laughs) All right. So he pitched it to um, uh, to a couple of the big venues uh, in Edinburgh. He pitched the Star Wars show and Who Me again. I said, I wasn't too keen about going back to Edinburgh with Who Me for a second time um, because I did so well the first time and pretty much all the regular Doctor Who fans in Edinburgh would have already seen it. So I said, okay. And unfortunately only who me got in. So I went, okay, well I'm going to go back with this show that I've already done and it's the return. What are we going to do about it? And so I said to Nick, the only reason I'll go back and take this show back to Edinburgh is because I can go to the UK and venues in the uk who'll be going up to edinburgh anyway if you can invite them along to see the show and then we can pitch them to do a uk tour because i missed out on doing it in 2013 i wanted to do edinburgh and then do a bit of a tour but it kind of fell through so that was the plan to do edinburgh again and then invite these uh, venues from around the uk to see the show and hopefully we get some bites to come back because i've always wanted to tour the show around the uk i thought it'd be great to actually get into you know you know the heartland yeah, of, uh, yeah. of the show and th- and that worked in my favor it was a hard slog last year i had a lot of great times but it was a really hard festival to get new people interested in this show i was reviewed by all the big you know uh print media last time and so they never go back and review a show again so i was yeah. struggling for reviews and struggling for crowd but all those um venues came and so that's why we've got this uh this tour they came saw the show they liked it they booked us in and you know the rest is history or future history mm. um so mm. i just yeah so it, it was a lot of hard work and it paid off and so you know uh the preps are underway and yeah we're a month away from um uh heading over 
Well, speaking of the dates then, and speaking of the fact that it's a month <laughs> what away... What a segue! <laughs> well, why not? I mean, anybody listening to this, <clears throat> if you've got a list of the dates in front of you, anybody listening to this might hear the name of a town that's somewhere close by, or even the town they live in, and the date, exactly. and pencil it into their diary. So, I mean, it's not a massive, massive tour. Can you reel off the list of dates and venues? And I... I... Definitely can, Jay. I'll be uh, starting off my tour in Exeter. <gasps> in uh, where? Exeter. I'm coming to your neck of the woods. <laughs> of course you are. And oh, yeah, a little I'll, bit yeah. of inside baseball before we move on. But <laughs> I am going to trap you in a room at some point during your stay in Exeter <laughs> and get you to do a Blue Box podcast in person as well as this one. So that's definitely that is, something that will be happening. <laughs> take that, Mark Smith and 42 to Doomsday. Robin, Mark, I'm going to be trapped in a room with JR. That's something you never got to do. <laughs> Where will the rest of the tour be going then? Uh, well, we're in Exeter on the 27th of June. We're going to uh, Borden on the 29th. Uh, we'll be at the Phoenix Theatre there. We're going to Southport on the, tw- on the 30th uh, at the Atkinson Theatre. We're going to Chipping Norton. On uh, July 4th at their theatre there, we're going to Norwich on the 5th of July, to Manchester at the Lowry on the 7th of July, mm. and then up to Inverness, all the way up there. We might see Lockie, Loch Ness while we're there, Nessie, on the <laughs> 8th of July. Um, all, the, all, the, all the information, all the tour dates, all the times and all the links to the venues are on my website, robloyd.com.au. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, thank I've I have actually interrupted you from rehearsals for something else that we can't really talk about because it'll be probably more or less over before this podcast goes out. Unfortunately. Yeah, it'll be well and truly yeah but I've, maybe that'll be another show we can bring over. Yeah, yeah. But I've interrupted you from rehearsals essentially to get this uh, interview. So I'll let you go now. But Rob, thank you for coming on and talking about all that stuff. It was fascinating. Well, thanks so much for your time, JR. I really appreciate you, um, uh, you know, offering to help out and uh, spread the word about uh, who me. I really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. It's like I said, <laughs> I can't remember if I said it on air or before we started recording, but it'd been in my mind to ask you onto the podcast since I first heard you on 42 to Doomsday. And this is how long <laughs> it's taken. Ridiculous, really. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, as you know, as we all know, time is relative. So uh, we'll, we'll, it, it, it may have taken years or it may have you know, only taken a matter of moments. <laughs> Until next week, then, where, if all goes to plan, we'll be talking about the wedding of River Song. Until then, <laughs> I was JR. And I was Rob Lloyd. And we'll speak again soon. Doctors walk into a bar. The first doctor mumbles everything he says, forgets everybody's names and starts hugging all the young people. He hadn't even started drinking. The second doctor, he sat in the corner all evening blowing his recorder. 
The third doctor got Terry Walsh to start a barroom brawl for him. The fourth doctor stayed so long he had to get kicked out. The fifth doctor... Fifth Doctor would have been a lot more fun if he got rid of his annoying friends. The Sixth Doctor showed up, but we didn't see him leave. The Seventh Doctor... Seventh Doctor kept on saying he'd been here before, but he doesn't remember when. The Eighth Doctor showed up for an hour. We didn't see him leave either. The Ninth Doctor acted like he didn't want to be there. The Tenth Doctor... The Tenth Doctor had to get kicked out because of all the people he snogged. And the... And the 11th Doctor was too young to get in. I am the prosecutor. And you have been brought here with a very important charge to defend your number one obsession, Doctor Who. Who here's a Doctor Who fan? Come on, make some noise! Yeah, all right. And someone's holding up an R2-D2. Ah, I'm confused. I'm sorry, I've... I've just noticed something. I know you probably get it all the time, but I'll just have to say it. Rob, you look exactly like David Tennant. Oh, let's see, let's play the guessing game, all right? Guess who, all right? Doc, Rob, Doc, Rob. Doc, Rob, Doc, Rob, Doc, Rob, Rob. Can you tell them apart? I can't. Now, on my first day at uni, I met Al. And we instantly made a connection, all right? We were the same. We were tall, thin, scrawny drama nerds. And we talked about our favourite books, TV shows, movies, actors for hours. I told him about Sherlock Holmes and he told me about Doctor Who. And I was fascinated, all right? Now, we're used to people asking us why you like it, what is it about the show that you like or whatever it is, okay? But there's only one time in your life, if you're lucky, if someone sits you down and says to you, tell me everything about what you know, about what you love. And I gave that gift to Al. Yep. And that was a cheap gift, it was free. I was a uni student, fuck off. <laughs> I remember that day, Al picking me up and driving me to uni, and he turned to me and he said, Rob, John Pertwee died. Now, I'd only been a fan a couple of weeks, and I had all this information running through my head, and I actually turned to Al and I said, who's John Pertwee? I know, I know, I was embarrassed, ashamed. So that night I went down to the video store and I borrowed out my first John Pertwee story. And it was his first story, Spearhead from Space. And at the end of those four magnificent episodes, I'd found my Doctor. The Doctor Who fan leads a solitary life, trawling the internet for any morsel of new information, only rarely venturing out from the habitat to trawl the secondhand bookshops for rare finds, Survey ABC stores for various merchandise and forage JB Hi-Fi for the latest DVD releases and that ever-elusive marked-down copy of Resurrection of the Daleks. Now, um, all of you mainstream uh, modern fans out there who are, you know, bow ties are cool type stuff, you may find this hard to believe, okay? But there was a time when it wasn't cool to like Doctor Who. Mmm, all right? Yeah, yeah. If anyone asked you if you liked Doctor Who, it was kind of like, what were you doing during the war? No, no, I have no idea who this Philip Hinchcliffe is. No. Oh, yeah, well, I was forced to watch the Doctor Who, and like everybody else, I laughed. Yeah, yeah. I laughed at the silly costumes and the wobbly sets. Ha, 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 ha. So you can just imagine, all right, a nerd party, all right? The music's pumping, all right? It's Jurassic Park theme by John Williams. Yeah, it's going off, come on. Yeah, do the raptor, all right? And in the middle of this party, all right, 
is the sexual tension, the antagonistic relationship, all right, between the Star Wars fan and the Star Trek fan, all right? It's kind of like Ross and Rachel, Lois and Clark, Hamish and Andy, all right? So that was the prosecution's case done, and that was my turn, my chance at defence. And I only called one witness to the stand, myself, Robert Lloyd. I swear to tell the truth, the old truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, what are you doing? Well, I thought I'd make a bit of a differentiation between the witness me and the lawyer me. Now, there's no real need, all right? Do, use your normal voice. But I've been working on this accent for years. Yeah, I know, okay? Just talk normally. Oh, well, okay. Uh, how about I do medieval tenant? Okay, good do. It's kind of a Scottish pirate who's a little bit Welsh. Scared, but I was scared too. I was terrified. I said to myself, I can't do this. I am not coping. I've got to go. I know I'm contracted for six months, but I've got to leave. I've got to get the hell out of here, all right? But then I thought to myself, what would the doctor do? The doctor wouldn't run away. The doctor would not be a coward. He would stay and fight, all right? And I felt like the doctor. I was a stranger in a strange land, all right? I didn't know how to communicate with the natives. Yeah, what's up, G? I don't know. I'm a nerd. I think velvet's a good idea. Come on! <laughs> Karina has been the one who's encouraged me to go to conventions. Now, I didn't go for quite some time, but now we're regulars. And I'm so glad that she did that because I've got to actually meet heroes of mine from Doctor Who. I've got to meet the seventh and the eighth doctor. I've got to meet Ace. She killed a Dalek with a baseball bat. I got to meet the voice of K-9 and I interviewed Colin Baker, the sixth doctor. And I didn't, I didn't geek out for five minutes. Uh, 